Welcome to the Philosophy Podcast, where host and lacrosse expert Jamie Monroe will do what he does best, talk about lacrosse. Each episode will provide listeners with education, insights, stories, and lessons about the lacrosse world. We will discuss current events, coaching, philosophies, and college lacrosse recruiting. Now let's get started with your host, Jamie Monroe. How's it going, everybody? Thank you so much for tuning in to my podcasts. I've had so much fun doing them. I only wish that I'd started recording my lacrosse conversations like 25 or 30 years ago. Now, if you like these podcasts, you will love the content I've created in the JM3 coaches training programs and the academies. Whether you're a coach or a player or a parent, there's so much great information for you guys. I've done this content for men's lacrosse and women's lacrosse for box lacrosse, field lacrosse, youth lacrosse. And the great news is I've created a seven day free trial. So if you're tired of endlessly searching the internet for great content, just go to www.jm3sports.com slash free trial. And you can get access to all of the content I've created for free for seven days. Trust me, when you take a look at it, you're gonna want more. Almost everybody gets hooked. All right, enjoy the rest of the podcast. All right, how's it going, everybody? Really excited to welcome John Thompson to the Philosophy Podcast. John is the head coach at Amherst. He took his team to the national championship last year and has really been on an upswing. Really fired up to hear about your program and your history and your journey. John, welcome to the show. Well, thanks so much, Jamie. Excited to be here. Well, I remember the first time we spoke back in like August 1999. Do you remember that? I sure do. The, one of the last things I remember you saying to me on that phone call is, if you just get on an airplane and come out and see, see Denver, I remember thinking to myself, I'm not sure I want to come out and see Denver because I know I'll be stuck there forever. I sure remember. You were a heck of a recruiter. I thought the last thing I said was, well, if you're not going to go to Denver, I'm glad you're going to Brent. <laughs> that, probably was, that probably was the last thing you said. <laughs> so you uh, grew up uh, in Maine. Tell us a little bit how you got started into lacrosse and how you ended up at Brent. Yeah, certainly. I, I was a hockey player by trade, was a three-sport guy by trade, uh, and was loved every sport that I was playing more than the one that I wasn't. And so although I was better at lacrosse when I was playing hockey, I loved hockey the most. When I was playing soccer, I loved soccer the most. And and uh, and then, you know, always always found my way back to lacrosse. And actually, probably if I was good enough to play college hockey, I probably would have played college hockey. But uh and I started, I started finding these people in lacrosse, and not unlike yourself, but guys like Pete Lasagna and guys like Mike Pressler, who started showing me what lacrosse could get me uh, in terms of a, an elite academic institution. And once I realized that I had the ability to play at a place that would get me that kind of education, you know, Duke and Brown in particular were the places that I was sort of wowed that oh, I might have a chance to go to one of those places because of this sport. Like I, I, at that point, I started realizing there that there may be a future uh, in that. But, um, you know, I got to tell you, I, I love, I still love three sport guys, but I, I think a lot of it comes from my own upbringing there. Yeah, for sure. And so uh, you played for Pete at Brown for three years. Uh, I played for Pete for a year. So he recruited me, uh, was a world beater of a recruiter, by the way. Yeah, and uh, him and Dom were probably the two – actually, John Donowski was extraordinary too. Those three guys taught me a lot about recruiting. But um, played for Pete for a year at Brown, then he decided he wanted to, to move on to Bates and then played for Scott Nelson for three years. And then Scott actually was – I was fortunate enough to get my first paid job um, by Scott. And so he uh, – I, be, I went to Springfield after college to get my sports psych degree uh, and performance enhancement. And then Pete, and then Scott actually was kind enough to offer me a paid job. And sort of like that's the one place that I would have left for is Brown. And so now I have a lot of gratitude towards Scott of getting me a paid coaching job. I loved working with humans, uh, but I wasn't sure if I was going to work with students in a scholastic environment or students in a in an athletic environment uh but be a faculty member or be a coach and scott was able to to you know provide that opportunity to brown for me to to coach and i just haven't looked back so you you had pete for one year which was 2000 and then you had scott for 01 02 03 you got it yep yeah you got it 
Yeah. And so tell yeah. me a little bit about your times at Brown. I mean, I, I've got such great memories of it. Who were some of the guys that during your day and, and what did you sort of, how did you grow as a player and a coach? Yeah, I, I'll tell you the difference between Pete and Scott. I mean, they couldn't have been more different, not for better or for worse, but, you know, each taught me their own sort of spin on, on coaching. I would say Pete was more of a player's coach. Um, and he, he really, you know, kept things up tempo and kept things upbeat and kept things really um, sort of positive. And Scott was sort of more of a, Hey, we're going to be the discipline team. We're going to make sure that we take care of the details. And, and if Scott Nelson could do anything, I'll tell you what, he was extraordinary with details. Um, and he taught me a lot about the importance of taking care of details. And so, uh, you know, the experience at Brown in general, you know, guys like Jimmy Moormiles, one of the ones that come to my mind, Mike Alberelli, um, you know, Mike Moffitt, uh, some of those guys, were you know some of the best offensive talents I've ever been around a guy named Chaz Gesner actually played in the NFL he, he was just I mean he had so many gifts physically um I was I was the least gifted of guys that uh that Pete recruited um but you know those guys we had some talented teams um but we didn't have we didn't have the greatest uh sort of stick with it rates uh, we had a lot of attrition in those, those handful of years, 2000, 2001, 2000, or 2001, 2002, 2003, we had a lot of guys decide not to keep playing and they quit. And I think that hurt our win loss, but yeah. we had some good players, man. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And then you uh, went off to Springfield and you got to coach there and get your master's. I did. Yeah. And actually that's, you know, coach Bugby's coaching tree, you know, you probably know this, but a lot of guys on the outside don't sort of have an idea his coaching tree. I mean, it's everywhere. And, uh, and just to be sort of to learn really from him about, you know, player, player development, but more player relationships. I mean, he was, his relationships with his players are, are second to none. So I got to coach with Pete Toner while I was there. Uh, Pete's now the D coordinator at, at Penn state. And, um, you know, it was fun bouncing ideas off of each other. He was, you know, defensive and I was offensive and, you know, using each other as iron sharpens iron. Um, you know, it was, it was really, really fun to work with him there. And then, as I say, Scott, Scott lured me back to Brown, which was awesome. And, and, um, you know, I, I say often that, that was the one place that could have pulled me away from my PhD. So I'm sort of halfway through my PhD, still sort of plugging away on classes every year and plugging away on my dissertation every year. And, and, uh, and so it's a long process for me, certainly, but uh, you know, I think the, the, the opportunity to go back to Brown and, um, and then ultimately ended up, Lars ended up hiring me as, as an assistant, uh, keeping me on. First year. Yeah. Which was great. I mean, he, he also taught me, you know, probably as much or more than anybody that, that I've worked with. And, and really, I, I said this at the convention when I talked, he taught me how to think about the game of lacrosse, which, which was really nice. And, and um, he just, he's got a really good way in terms of thinking creatively uh, about things. And he was never sort of, to be honest with you, Jamie, he, he was a Brown guy, right? I mean, he, he always looked outside the box. He always looked outside the lines. And, and it was fun for me to learn from him that your Brown education could translate into thinking on a lacrosse field. It doesn't have to be this way. Yes, it is this way, but you can make it your own way. Um, so he really taught me how to use my Brown education to think about the game of lacrosse, which, you know, I'll forever be thankful for. Yeah. Yeah. You've had an opportunity to play for and coach with some, some legends. I mean, like you said, Pete Lasagna, who had a great run at Brown and was the assistant when I was there. Um, and just one of the funniest, fun, funniest guys and best guys to be around. Just a total beauty. He um, is. And Scott Nelson, you know, was, was, you know, the star of Division Three. you know, maybe second star next to Jim Berkman, but, but yep. was really viewed as one of the smartest coaches in the game. Um, and uh, he, always, he always had, like, really good stuff dialed in. I just remember um, playing you guys, and you guys hammered Denver and, in uh, 2001, your sophomore year. But it was a little bit of a payback because we beat you in 2000. You sure did beat us in 2000. I, I remember that one. Like for the, for the program in Denver. But, but Chaz Gessner scored like four off-the-ball goals on this little <laughs> inside cut play on the 3-3 or something, if I recall. That's and exactly course, And then Coach Bugby, you know, like you said, just a legendary guy, leader, mentor, um, who's just had so you know, such a wide crew. And then Lars, you know, who's now, you know, household name, national champion. 
um, just unbelievable. And, and, it, and from there, you went on to be the head coach at Colby? I did, yeah. It was spent two years up there, uh, actually, and, and uh, you know, knew, knew that being a head guy was something that was really important to me. Um, you know, I, I, I'm not sure I would have been a life – I don't think I could have swung being a lifelong Division One assistant. That just wasn't my – just wasn't my MO. And also the Division – three versus the division one thing has never really been all that important to me. Um, the right fit has always been more important to me. So with Lars, I loved what I had because I was coaching great academic guys who were really smart, who I could relate to. Um, he's certainly smarter than I was. And then, and then, you know, when I went up to, when I went up to Colby, I still got to coach those really smart guys. And so that fit was really good. And then actually a really, a really cool story. Probably the finest leader I've ever been around was the AD at Amherst. And I didn't know her at all. And I was actually calling her on someone else's behalf uh, to just say, hey, I've got a name for you for your search. And, uh, and she started, you know, pushing pretty hard on my interest. And, and I actually said no three times. And then she called the fourth time and said, hey, we want to win a national championship and we want you to do it. And that was a, that was a hard moment to – to not listen uh, and then I actually came to Amherst on my interview and realized they had the open curriculum and it was over because uh, that's what Brown has. And, and when I realized that there was another school that had the open curriculum, I knew it was going to be really tough for me not to work there because I loved recruiting the open curriculum so much. So in terms of a fit, it just worked. I mean, it really worked at Amherst and, and, you know, I think having a great product to recruit to makes, makes me a good coach. I'm not, I'm not a great coach anywhere else, but I know I can recruit. That's for sure. <laughs> that's awesome. And you really, um, you've gone to, I think six in a row NCAA tournaments, total of seven made it all the way to the final, but you know, shifting back to when you first started both uh, as a head coach at Colby. And then as you made your move a couple years later to Amherst, you know, you can prepare as much as you want to be a head coach, but it's kind of like trying to prepare to be a parent. You read all the books, but you really have no idea what you're doing. Amen to that. Amen to that. There were a lot of times when I first became a parent that I wish there was a book that set, that taught you how to do it. But uh, yeah, I, I do think that um, I think a lot of, at least for me, a lot of my preparation to be a head coach was sort of the foundation that those guys helped me build. Right. I mean, I, I think about the details, you know, and how, you know, taking care of the details as a head coach, a lot of, a lot of your job is details and a lot of your job is detail management. And, um, and then I do think another piece of it, you know, what's interesting is you look at the NFL right now, but I think another piece of being a head coach is command presence. Uh, and, and do you have command presence or don't you have command presence? And you look at some of these hires, you know, recently in the NFL, and it's actually moving away from sort of tactician right? And technique based versus, you know, a guy who's just hired for the Giants and they're thinking that, you know, he's got really good command presence uh, and they, his interview impressed him because of his command presence. You look at a guy like Teddy Bruce or uh, Teddy Bruschi, uh, Mike Vrabel for the, for the Titans, and he was hired because of his command presence. And then you surround yourself with other people who can, who can do the day-to-day the -day operations that you can oversee and I don't know, I got to tell you, I'm excited to see coaching move in a direction of leadership um, as opposed to sort of X's and O's. I think it's really fun to look and see, hey, I'm inspired by that person versus that person's a really good tactician. I'll tell you who I would follow 10 times out of 10, but, you know, it's, it's, fun, to, it's fun, to see, fun to see other organizations starting to move in the direction of let's hire the best leader. Um, I, if I were to tell you one thing, I'd say I'm a better leader than I am a coach. That's, that's what I'd say about myself. Yeah. Well, that's incredibly important. I mean, every podcast I do, um, everybody is moving in that direction um, huh. as far as putting, creating culture and being the CEO of the organization uh, ahead of everything else, because it truly is, it is everything. Um, Jamie, you know, what's interesting when you, when you say that, when you say the CEO, um, What's been really, what's been really fascinating in my own coaching journey is how that one phrase CEO has changed so much in my own 11 years of being a head coach. It's gone from chief executive officer to chief emotional officer. 
And that one change in word to me is such a dramatic change in philosophy in terms of what my role is, is that I think it's, I think it's interesting. And, and I do believe a lot of my success recently is due to the fact that our guys have a better relationship with their coach. I really believe that. And, and I, so I think that, that it's fascinating because that CEO thing, yeah. all about it, maybe perhaps in a little bit different way than, you know, the CEO at Goldman is though. <laughs> give, um, give us some examples on, on how that plays out. Yeah. So, you know, I think I'll never forget 2013 um, was my third season at Amherst and we had had a ton of success my first season almost everything went perfectly. And, and I knew that sort of at some point we were going to take a dip, but I didn't really know how. So 2013 was my, the freshman, my first class showed up in Amherst and we started eight freshmen that year. Uh, and we lost nine, one or two goal games. And so at the end of that year, I went on a pretty deep, a pretty long and intensive deep dive and called probably 20 coaches, 20 head coaches, talked to a lot of different people about sort of what it could be. And I remember keeping hearing, oh, the injury bug and the injury bug and, you know, one goal games, you got to find a way to win one goal games. I just remember being so unsatisfied. Then I'm taking a walk with my wife, with our two-month-old daughter at the end of the season. And I remember her saying to me, John, when you're at your very best, you pass – coaching these guys on an emotional scale. And for some way, for some reason, you almost reach them on a spiritual level. And I remember it hitting me like it was a ton of bricks, like I've lost touch with our guys. And so I double down, we do 45 minute one-on-one interviews or one-on-one individual meetings. We call them indies. Uh, We do them like three or four times a fall, three or four times uh, a spring. And then more than that, I've just had to be okay with sort of letting them in, being vulnerable and not sort of being this end all be all authority figure, but sort of letting them in and seeing a different side of me. And that might mean getting emotional with them when, when things are really hard, or that might mean letting them see me fail at certain things and admitting failure. And I got to tell you, when they see, when they have seen me more human, I've gotten a much better result than when they've seen me as some robot. Um, And for one reason or another, that took me longer than I would have liked to admit to figure that piece out. But uh, it seems so, it seems so obvious, but to me, it wasn't, It, it was when, when things are going wrong, grip it tighter, work harder, get to the office earlier, take care of more details. When actually if I just would have wrapped my arm around the guys and had, had them to dinner, like we're doing class dinners tomorrow night, our seniors come the next night, our, our juniors come. And then two weeks later we have the freshmen and then the sophomores come. And so we do these class dinners. And like, if I would have just done a class dinner where they could have asked me like, coach, like, what do you do with your daughter in the off season? Like we probably would have won one of those games. (laughs) And so I, I just think in some ways letting them in, letting the guys into my life has been a, it's probably been my biggest growth growth in terms of that CEO. It's a, it's a huge uh, undertaking to have into Indies three or four times a year. I mean, it's almost like 40 hours in a week when you do that. And it's it's a, it's a good exercise. I hadn't thought about it in terms of the hours, but I do every time I'm putting them together, I'm like, whew, this is going to be a long couple weeks. But then, but then at the end of them, I mean, literally, my wife's name is Susanna. Literally, Susanna will say to me, you must have had – I come home at the end of the day, she, and she'll say to me without me telling her, you must have had a bunch of Indies today. And I'm like, why? And she's like, you just are happy. I'm like, I mean, amen to that. Like, it, it goes both ways. Like, I'm making them happier. They're making me happier. And then, you know, our whole culture just it, – it's more positive. It's more infectious. It's more enthusiastic. So it, it, it is work, but it certainly goes both ways. I'm, I'm more selfish than, than I may appear. <laughs> <laughs> so you have a sports psychology background. Did you, did you, you finished up that PhD? I have not yet. I still, I'm working on my dissertation. Uh, so I've finished classes for it, which has been a, which is huge. But now the, the dissertation is still, it's still, it's still in progress. I'm making, I'm making it work. 
Yeah, it's but, fun. Um, the question I really had though was how are you applying that? Because I mean, honestly, back to the CEO concept, however you want to use the letter E. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you have a huge advantage over people to understand sports psychology and to understand psychology. How are you applying your knowledge to your coaching? I think a lot of it really, so my focus is in leadership. Um, and, uh, and so I've worked on, um, uh, assessment tool named disc and it's a leadership assessment tool. It's becoming more and more popular now. It's a really, it's a really neat tool. And, um, and so a lot of what I do with that is during these individual meetings, actually talk guys through, um, their own leadership style and help them figure out what their own strengths are and then how to play to those strengths in a practical way. And so we did a, um, we did a leadership scouting report for every guy, uh, this fall. And it's a one pager about, Hey, from the outside, here's what your strengths are. Here's what your weaknesses are. Here's how you can apply your strengths. And here's what we think you need to do. Here's what I think you need to do in order to change those weaknesses into attributes that you can actually use, whether those will be strengths or not, who knows. But, and so really sort of taking my expertise in sort of leadership theory and leadership discussion and sort of putting it into practice with them saying, you know, Hey, here's how to become a better man. Certainly I, I tie those two things hand in hand of leadership and, and masculinity. But, but I think as here's how to become a better leader. And, and again, there's certainly a self-serving piece to this, right? I mean, if we have a great second layer of leadership on our lacrosse team, we're gonna be really good. And yeah. so, you know, I think it's, it's accomplishing the primary mission of saying, Hey, you know, we want to help build better men, but it's accomplishing our secondary mission of saying, you know what, we also want to be a really good lacrosse team. And so um, what I do think is really interesting is you hear me use the phrase mission and that, and I hadn't thought about it till now, but that is certainly right from my father's playbook. He's 101st airborne Ranger. And so you sort of, you have this, this sports psychology in me and 101st Airborne Ranger and my dad and where those two things meet is probably where my leadership philosophy <laughs> come, comes, right? And so I think it's, I think using a little bit of all of, of the education, but also my own personal experience, you know, helps our guys. So a scouting report on leadership for every player, and then you help them then figure out how to be leaders within the scope of with, with their own particular role within the scope of your team. What are some examples of, of how, you know, a senior versus a junior, sophomore, freshman might, it might manifest itself. Yeah. So I don't, I can think of the person's name, you know, who I'm using, but one of the examples would be, you know, have you crossed sort of the, uh, the barrier um, of charisma, right? And, and, and one of my thoughts here is, that if you are charismatic, you, you sort of have, have crossed a, a leadership threshold where you have people's attention. If, you're, if, you, if you have either leadership presence or you're charismatic enough to get people's attention and then get their trust when you speak. And so, for example, one of the sophomores was, listen, I think you've done a really good job of crossing that leadership threshold because when you speak, people really listen. And here's what I see the weaknesses are of when you speak. I think that there are times where you hold back because you think other people are thinking the same exact thing and you're worried about sounding dumb because Amherst people are so smart. Well, you, your ideas, other people haven't thought of those ideas. So we need to hear those ideas in a more meaningful way, in a more consistent way. And then sort of that's my task. And then the, the follow-up is, you know, honestly, behavior modification, right? How do you modify behavior? The most powerful behavior modifier in the world is positive reinforcement when it's directed at an actual task and so, or an action. And so when I see this young man do this in a, in a public setting of bringing an idea up that a week ago, he would have thought other people had thought about, he brings an idea up. I stopped the meeting right there and we have something called recognizing excellence on our team. Stop the meeting right there and say, I want to recognize your excellence for that exact moment. Bang, move on. The conversation continues as if that never happened. And so I think in a lot of ways we use the scouting reports, the leadership scouting reports to, to encourage them. But then on the back end, it's coachability and how quickly can you implement feedback and how quickly are you willing to try feedback and, 
No, I know I'm going off on a little bit of a tangent, okay. but it's what I'm passionate about. It's I love this stuff. You said um, an interesting comment about that, which was uh, positive reinforcement is the most powerful uh, behavior modifier. Behavior modifier when it's specified to a task. Exactly. Does yeah. it have to be tied to that? Is that like what are some well, examples of where that well, works? So, for example, like, nice job isn't it's not good enough it's thank you for the compliment i'm really glad that you have a positive attitude i'm really glad that you think highly of me but it doesn't relate to a specific task nice job speaking up in public when you might have thought that that message had already been thought of by other people i hope you see that it hadn't been thought of and that your idea contributed to the success of our culture now a guy's like Boom, I know exactly what he's talking about. I know exactly the moment that I made my team better. I know exactly the moment that I took a step forward in terms of my own personal development. And oh my God, I'm going to do that again because it felt really good. And yeah. so in terms of like all we are as coaches or teachers or educators is we're trying to help make people better. And like they want to be, they want to feel good about themselves too. We're just trying to help them feel good about themselves because they're getting better every day. That's, that's how I approach it. That's how I, I work. That's how I, try and teach our assistants to do it too. And, and, um, you know, I think sometimes we'll get at it. Sometimes <laughs> I could be better. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah, no um, let's talk about taking this model to the playing field where all of a sudden, you know, it's, it's like difficult because there's pressures of games or practice and, you know, there's decision-making that has to come along. There's confidence or a lack thereof that's getting in the way of these things. How do you use uh, your sports psychology to help performance on the field? Yeah, I, I think the first way that I would, I would answer that question is exactly the way that we, that I just laid out for this, this ideas and this public speaking thing we use on the lacrosse field as well. So we, so we use those exact same techniques on the lacrosse field for a skill set, but there are also, so you want to enhance uh, your decision-making from behind the goal. Okay. Well, we're going to recognize when you've made that decision really well, and we're going to, we're going to wrap it when you make, when you don't do it as well. So that's one way of sort of just copying pasting from what we just talked about. But then the other piece is we had, we acknowledge and we um, encourage our guys to describe the barriers to success. What are your barriers to success? What are our barriers to success? And more and more and more, certainly we are coming up with confidence as a barrier to success. Uh, and so what's fascinating, if you dive down on the science of confidence, is there is self-confidence, which is sort of the overarching, I'm confident as a person, or I'm confident in the way that I'm playing. And then there's what's called self-efficacy. And that's what I really care about is self-efficacy. And self-efficacy is the confidence in the task at hand. And the way that you create confidence in the task at hand is by yes repping it but also sort of putting these little deposits in the bank of saying i've done it well i've done it well i've done it well i've done it well and so that's sort of where you can develop a practice plan that says each guy needs to be working on the self-efficacy of catching the ball looking inside backside far side now you've developed a self-efficacy to say i can do this and i don't have to think if there's anything I'm trying to do on a lacrosse field, it's, pre it's create a practice plan that allows our guys to not think in a game. That is my whole MO is let's create a practice that makes them think so by the time they get to game, they don't have to think. And that's sort of where I just remember as a player, I slowed way down. When my brain turned on, I slowed way down. And I don't think this generation's that much different from, from me when I was a player, you know, 20 years ago, 15 years ago. So, yeah. Interesting. Um, one of the hardest things is watching a player that you know has worked really hard and knows what they're supposed to do and knows how to do it. And they've worked on this particular skill in this particular situation tons of times, both sides of the ball, but then they don't do it. So how do you use, how do you, uh, how do you get through that? Because that's, that's like the main thing that I think every coach runs into where they're like, man, I wish I had a sports psychologist because I know they know how to do it. No, no doubt. So I'll, I'll give you a really interesting example. And this, uh, this could be Amherst 
people. This could be Amherst Brown and Colby people. This could be that sort of type A personality people, or this could just be general. I, I don't know because I've not coached everywhere, but I know this works at these places. So last year, um, we did the same drill, some variation of the same unsettled drill five days in a row. And then we go and, you know, it was, Hey, today's focus is going to be on flybys or today's focus is going to be on pass downs in unsettled. And, and, you know, I was puffing my chest out and like, hey, look at this practice drill. It's going to work so well in a game. We get to the game and we do it literally one time. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, so there is a disconnect. And so my first reaction, and this is just sort of how I am better for better for worse is my first reaction is I have failed our team because they're not doing what I want them to do. And so I brought all of the meaningful parties to the table right in the middle of the field. And we said, Hey, here's the, here's the deal. I don't think I communicated with you very well about what my goals are for unsettled. These are the practice drills we did last week. These are what I thought my areas of focus are. Where did I miss? And there's quiet. It's quiet. It's quiet. And then finally somebody speaks up and it was a defensive midfielder. He's like, so coach, what do you want our priorities to be? You're giving us all these options, but what do you want us to do? And it was this moment where you're like, thank goodness, when they are invested in your game plan, you get what you want in terms of execution. You get what you want in terms of decision. And just giving them a space to speak on executing the skill that you want allowed our communication to be clearer and I missed, I had missed. I thought I was giving them options, but I might've been giving them too many options. They just wanted to know one or two, three things that I wanted them to do. And I just missed. And, and so I guess one of the things I would say is like in that moment where a guy's not doing what you want, like be secure enough to say, I haven't done this well enough. I got to find a new way home. Right. And I got to find a new way to teach him because the way that I'm doing, it's not working. And it's not a personal attack on my ability to coach our team it's this new moment to be creative to find another way to coach and so I, I would say that that for me has been my most successful I wish I came to that more often or more quickly it takes me a little bit longer than I'd like to admit to come to that realization sometimes but certainly works I'm going to read you this uh, paragraph that we talked about before because I think it's really interesting and I wanted to chat about it once we started in our pre- podcast conversation, but this is a quote from a blog from Raymond Verheyen, soccer guy. So this is called, is titled Executing a Decision. By non-verbally communicating with their surroundings, players collect information about teammates, opponents, etc. Based on this information, players make a decision. Next, they have to execute this decision with their technique. So football, so technique in football means executing a decision and not just executing a technique like in, for example, gymnastics. Um, we were talking about this a little bit before and I thought it was an interesting conversation. Give me your thoughts on that as it relates to your background as a head coach, as a guy that's done a lot of thoughtful um, you know, research in sports psychology and tried to apply it. Yeah, the first thing I think is, I love it because it's, it's about empowerment, right? And to me, that's, you know, I, I, as I think about my journey as a head coach, I think about a guy who started my journey, you know, wanting to be the most fierce competitor in the world and wanting that to rub off on our guys. And like, if I do that well, then we're going to win. Yeah. And then now getting to the point where I'm like, actually, all I really want is my players to be empowered. And, and if we can be empowered, we're going to be really good decision makers. And if we're good decision makers, we're going to be really hard to coach against <laughs> because now we're talking about making decisions based on what another person is doing. And that's all about gathering information. And so as I think about my perfect lacrosse team, we, we talk about here at Amherst, like, what is it? We always chase the goal, the ghost of Amherst. Like we're never going to reach it because it's always a ghost. But like if we chase the ghost of Amherst and we get close, we know we're playing up to the very closest to our potential we could be playing. And so like, if we're, if the, if we ever reach the ghost of Amherst, 
then we've got 10 guys on the field who are making decisions and who feel empowered at the same time. And honestly, I don't know if, I don't know if I believe that that's ultimately possible to, to have 10 18 to 22 year olds who feel perfectly empowered at all times. But I got to tell you, as, as you talked about collecting information and making decisions, you know, versus following through on technique, I've come a, I've come a long way for, for, Hey, this is exactly how you do a split to roll behind the goal goal to, you know, what fellas like try a split to roll here because it's really good move. And however you want to do it, like do it, but I'm not going to teach you the exact footwork unless you ask for it. Yeah, no doubt. And, and I think that kind of goes back to the whole concept of why is it that people can do things in practice and they can't necessarily do them in games is because we are scripting it out for them. And so we can, we can as a good coach, we can make it happen. We can make a drill work. We can make, the, we can make them execute. They can hear us. We can stop it. We can fix it. Um, and then when we get into the game, it, it, it doesn't happen exactly that way. They get a little more pressure or they're doing something a little bit different. And then all of a sudden they're at the other end of the field and, and, and they can't hear us. Um, and so this is why it really comes down more to executing a decision than it does to just executing a skill, which is why the title of that blog is something along the lines of isolated technique training slows down football development. And it's, I don't know. It's pretty wild. Um, well, it is. One of the things that makes me think about Jamie, and as you were just talking about executing a practice, it made me think about, so we've got a phrase with our guys and you know, the phrase, I'll keep the phrase here, but essentially the, the idea is this, right? Southwest airlines, you know, a, a flight attendant on Southwest airlines has the flexibility to make a decision based on the mission of the organization and the mission of the organization at Southwest airlines is we want to be the single best customer service airline in the world. And so that flight attendant, whatever decision she makes, as long as it supports the mission of the company, she had, he or she has a green light to make that decision in order to support the mission. And we have come a long way with our guys to say, as long as your decision helps us play the single fastest brand of lacrosse in the United States of America, I'm going to support your decision and I'm going to support your decision making and we might tweak it, but I'm going to support it. And I got to tell you, when we start correlating mistakes and turnovers and, and misses, when we start correlating those to wins and losses, they don't, they don't correlate to wins and losses. And what's, what's interesting about that is, okay, you got a group of guys who was willing to make some mistakes and willing to take chances you're going to have a really tough team to play against, right? They have to play against guys who are empowered, the guys who are making decisions based on supporting the mission of your organization. So again, like all my tactics and all my X's and O's, like I think they mean nothing as compared to like building a culture that guys feel free in and guys can play free in. Like, I just think that's what Amherst does, does well, better, as well as anybody. How do you, um, how do you empower the players in terms of your practice plan. Yeah. So I mean, of it, you know? Yeah. I mean, I'm even thinking about, um, I'm even thinking about uh, sort of coming full circle. Right. So uh, we have, we have a bunch of different read progressions. I'll, I'll use one read progression. It's for our transition midfielders. Um, and so we teach them, Hey, here's, here's what you're looking for. Here's your first read. Here's your second read. Here's your third read. And where we used to, where we used to say, this is what we want you to do. Now we're saying, here's, here's what we want you to read. And then we want you to make a decision based on that read and then coming sort of full circle. And then here are your, here's your decision tree after that. And so coming full circle to sort of an earlier question that I'm not sure I answered perfectly, but coming full circle to your question about how do you implement your feedback loops on the lacrosse field? Yeah this is the way that we do it is when a guy makes a decision that's outside the box that hasn't been practiced, that is clearly within the decision tree that we support. We recognize that excellence up and down on film and recognize, Hey, yeah, we didn't teach you that, but you made a great decision here. And that's what we want you to do. We want you to make those decisions all the time. And then we almost never 
talk about the bad decisions. We almost never do that. It's just not part of our DNA. And again, it's not for judgment, for better or for worse. It's for what, do you, what, what are you going to get out of the player the next time, right? And so I just think for a lot of, a lot of the way we do things, po infectious positivity, infectious enthusiasm for us go a really long way in terms of the way we play. When you think about decision-making, a non-decision is oftentimes a big decision and it was a missed opportunity. And that usually comes back to confidence. How do you work on that one? It was just going to, it was funny you say that. I was just going to say the first thing that comes to my mind when a non-decision happens is fear of failure. That's the first thing that comes to my mind is if you, if you hesitate in a moment, it means you're afraid of the moment. And so how do we sort of encourage you to not be afraid of the moment? Honestly, some of these individual meetings are where I find we make the most progress is, can you tell me about your impediments? Can you tell me about your barriers to success in that moment? What are the things that as you look back on it, what are the things that you didn't think about? What are the things that you could have done? And what if, why were you afraid, right? If you can get an 18 to 22 year old guy to tell you why he's afraid, you're about to make some progress in terms of changing the way things operate. And so to me, yes, the practice, you got to start working with that person more in terms of the practice plan and in terms of repping specific drills and putting them in better situations, but also just helping acknowledge like it's okay to be afraid. Now let's go find a way around that fear of failure. And what I find, at least with Amherst guys, is they make one mistake and they do 10 things well. And the first thing they think about is a mistake. And so sometimes it's as easy for me. It's just as easy as me saying, okay, cool. Like, let's acknowledge that you just made a mistake on that read. Cool. Let's put it in this little Tupperware container. Put the red top on the Tupperware container. Seal all four sides of the Tupperware container. Put it in your drawer. Shut the drawer and leave it there for a little bit, right? And then I'm going to take this green Tupperware container out and I'm going to take all 10 things that you did right before that and I'm going to take them out because you haven't thought about those 10 things that you just did really well because you're a type A personality and you're a perfectionist. And so I think acknowledging that like they did 10 things really well and so 10 out of 11 is still an A. Right. Like, <laughs> and so I think in some ways, like just reminding them how many things they did well that led to that moment, it's that easy. And yet sometimes that's the hardest thing to do as a coach is when you want to pull your hair out to be like, Oh, well look at all these good things. Right. And so I think balancing that is certainly a, is, is a challenge I face. Um, but I'm sure every coach faces it. Uh, it's oh, just, yeah. you know, well, one of the ones that's on my mind. Um, learning is messy, right? I mean, it's like, it's not, great good. and you know, I just feel like I always had a habit of like making it right because mm. I, because I could, because I knew what I wanted and I could like make it happen. But again, like, I think you're better off letting these messy things happen and then watching it later on film because they're still getting important decision-making reps, whether it's what you wanted or not. I got to tell you, and you, you mentioned this earlier about being a parent. Like, I got to tell you, everyone, when I, was, when I was married without kids, everyone used to tell me I was just, so I was really afraid that having children was going to make me a worse coach because it was going to take so much time away from my coaching. And all the parents used to be like, actually, we think it's going to make you a better coach. And that, what you just described about letting your team fail, like, I know you're going to fall. I know one of my daughters is going to fall down two stairs here or bang her knee or scratch her leg or break an arm. And like, Ish, how much am I willing to let them do that versus how much am I going to protect them from failure? And that probably in terms of parenthood has been the thing that has helped me grow the most as, as a coach. It's just, yeah, you're going to let them, you, you want them to pick a ground ball up this way, or you want them to do first time ground balls, or you want them to do a four V three this way. Like, Take your whistle out of your mouth. There is an amazing, Jamie, if you haven't read this book, it, 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 it's not perfect for lacrosse, but this book is called Duct Tape Parenting. And when I first heard the book, it was like, oh, okay, that means like you're just piecing things together with duct tape. And, and then when I read the book, the whole thing is about 
how to put duct tape over your mouth, how to tie your hands together with duct tape, how to allow your kids, and thereby extension our lacrosse players, how to allow them to make failure. Like you wanna, you wanna correct them from doing something? put duct tape on your mouth, let them figure it out themselves. You want to, you want to correct, you want to, you want to grab, grab your kid's arm and yank them out of trouble, like put duct tape on your hands and don't yank them out of trouble. Let, and so the whole book is about like, how can you resist the urge to help when you know you can fix something? And yet that is the best teaching moment when they can learn it for themselves. So if I can ever get good at that, I actually might win that last game of the year, but uh, right yeah. now I'm still working on it. Well, it's interesting, too, because one way to do this is in practice is to make things competitive, right? You turn the drill into a game. And whatever it is, it could be anything. It could be a ground ball drill. It could be one, you know, anything. You could make anything you want competitive. And I, so my first question to you is how much do you make things competitive in your practices from, you know, from the beginning of the practice to the end? I know not everything's going to be, but, but how do you do that and how much do you do that? For we do it a lot. Um, I wonder if we do it as much as some um, in that my first guess would be we do it less than some. Um, and so as our season progresses, we are able to do to slow things down teaching wise more. So in February, you want to keep the guys up and running. You want to get them going. You don't want their legs to get hot and cold and hot and cold. And so in February and March, we certainly are up and down and up and down. And, and that is competitive. Um, a lot of times we'll do things other than goals though, right? So two points for a first time ground ball, two points for, you know, execution on that. And so a lot of times it's, it's competitive on the scoreboard in a way that if someone walked to the field, they're like, it's 62 to 41 right now. Like what is going on? Um, but then, you know, there are other times where we just find slowing it way down and having conversations in really small world you know, it's a drill of six people, but we're not sprinting everywhere we're going. You know, I think we probably do it less than some, but more than many. Yeah. Um, is, is well, and I don't think there's any right or wrong. And I wasn't looking for, I didn't, you know, I, I'll speak for myself. And I think I speak for a lot of people to kind of know, like kids like it better when it's competitive. It's more fun. Yep. And then as a coach, we like that because we like watching people compete. We know that in the end, competitors is what we need as much as anything. Right. But yet in the spirit of getting it right and in the spirit of more reps, we don't make things as competitive as often as maybe we should. And I, I'm looking at that from my own, you know, my own lens. So I'm not, I don't want to put that on anybody else, but I just think it's an interesting concept because, because basically like, you know, you can, can get a lot more reps if you just rep out the offense against the defense and six on six and you bang it out. But, are those really meaningful reps if you did fewer reps that were competitive in your six on six? And of course the parameters you're referring to is, you know, a point for a goal, you know, a point for a clear uh, or a point for, you know, half point for a clear, a double, two points for a double team that successfully creates a turnover or all different ways you can make things competitive. But it is pretty interesting when you think about that. I was just curious about your opinion. I do. Uh, you know, it, it's such an interesting dynamic. You look at the best players in the world and they are all fiercely, fiercely competitive. Uh, and what's interesting is you look at the best players in the world and they also know how to make decisions while competing at that really high level. And so that's the dynamic you're talking about is when to slow it down to help teach them how to make decisions. Um, what we don't have, we don't have like the GPS units that some people have at Amherst. Like some people have GPS units that track how far you work. I actually, I lean towards that as being a piece of the competitiveness. I think there's some DNA to competitiveness. There's some, re there's some positive reinforcement that can help in enhance it. But I also think workload. I think how much a guy works influences how competitive they can be on game day. And, you know, the eye test works sometimes. I, I hope it works a lot of the time with the, with what we have, but like, you know, I think it'd be fun sometimes to be like, oh, well, look at this transition. Mitty ran six miles in practice yesterday. I wonder why he's a little bit soft today in the game, or I wonder why he's dogging it. Like, that might not be him. That might be me, right? So I, I, that's an interesting dynamic. I certainly love hearing coaches talk about it because, you know, I, I, I don't know if anybody values competitiveness like more than I do. I just at the same time don't think 
I don't think it's the only thing that I care about. And, and obviously it's not for anybody, but I, I don't know where I fall on it. I know I'm super passionate about it, but I also don't think everything has to be competitive. So I, I'm with you. We're all no, in this. Totally. I, I don't think there's a right or wrong. I, I think it has yeah. more to do with decision-making opportunities it, because when it's competitive, we don't, we don't script it. Absolutely. And that's kind of where I'm getting at with it. Yeah. Although the competitiveness is we know it's important, but I think when, when it's all of a sudden, it's a, it's a competitive version of West Jenny or whatever. Um, we're no longer, it's up to them. We don't really care who wins or loses. We're kind of, of interested in the state. you know what I mean? And, and so whatever, you know, who does, um, I've been to a lot of um, college practices in the last year or two. John Torpy at high point makes things competitive. That's a lot. And, uh, you know, I wouldn't say all the time, but quite often. And the kids yep. square off. They have this really cool thing, actually, where, like, on the loudspeaker, it's like, ding, ding. And it's like, da, 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 da. And all of a sudden, <laughs> the kids are like, you and you, one-on-one. -on -one. And, like, That's cool. like, you got to pick sides. And basically, they go nuts, you know. And it's, it's really cool. It's fun. It's fun we, stuff. We do, we do a thing called it pays to be a winner. And, um, and so usually once a practice, it's a drill, some drill, and by the side of the drill, it's got pays to be a winner. And so the guys know that there's something at the end. Sometimes it's negative. Sometimes it's positive. Uh, sometimes it's a set of practice, a new set of practice shorts for the winning team while the old ones have to wear the ripped old ones the next day, you know? And so usually there will be something on the practice pays to be a, pays to be a winner. And, and so there's sometimes. That collective hallelujah you're hearing is coming from tobacco road. It means the cross season is back. We move. Just... That's funny. It's gone on my end. Yeah. I just turned it off. That was uh, somehow um, that sounded like a college across beginning. <laughs> no all good i uh it's just the pays to be a winner thing i think it's really fun to attach reward and consequence to to drills yeah. i think yeah it makes, no, no doubt it, you um, know you, you were saying they care about it more they certainly do i mean they yeah. certainly give more yeah it, it is it's just really interesting to think about and I, I just it's all coming back to for me it's all coming back to the idea of executing of processing and executing a decision and how do you build stuff that allows the players to do that? Because in the end, people talk about 10,000 hours, you know, of, to get, I, I think those hours are, you know, are not all created equal. And I think that there's what I would call empty reps where you're doing a lot of stuff that's structured. And then I think that there's, um, you know, really, really beneficial reps where there's more decision-making and, and I'm not saying there's no value to just wall ball either but I just think there's the diminishing returns sometimes. And I was just curious about your thoughts and how it related back to your sports psychology background. I think probably we're on a, on a really similar page there in terms of, you know, in terms of trying to create practices that have as many meaningful competitive reps while limiting the empty reps. Um, you know, I, what's interesting to me is this less is more, this less is more pendulum continuum, spectrum whatever you want to call it um late in may last year we were practicing for 60 minutes and that was it i mean it was 60 minutes on the field and it was no more than that and it was that included a warm-up wow. and and it was like okay what would i would i rather coach a team that's fresh and oh by the way probably of those 60 minutes 10 of them were scrimmages like and so to your point about high highly competitive moments you know like what do i what's the most important thing that i watch i watch when i watch them scrimmage that's the most important thing that i watch and and what's the thing that the kids have the most fun doing hate to tell you about my my super fancy attack drill but the thing they, they like most doing is scrimmaging so I, I think i do think that um that you know I, I don't know how it relates to sports psychology, but I, I do know that, that I think about this a lot. I bet you this is the thing that all coaches think about the most is how can we, how can we make meaningful reps? Yeah, no doubt. Well, I want to switch gears for a second. Tell us a little bit about your uh, philosophies and how you recruit. Yeah, uh, I guess I'll start with recruiting philosophy. Um, speed. It pretty much all comes back to speed. Um, you know, our, our midfielders are usually 6'2", 6'3". Um, 
you know, they have the ability to play both ends of the ball uh, in many ways. You know, what we recruit is sort of what's old is new again. What's new is old again. Um, you know, we like two-way, three-way, four-way middies um, who can get up and down, uh, who can run really fast. And then we like attackmen who, unfortunately, I feel like the rest of the country like these same attackmen, but uh, the ones who are little shifty water bugs who can run between your legs. Um, and so speed, speed, speed uh, is where we start. Um, you know, athleticism is two uh, competitiveness, interestingly enough, is three. And then skill actually for us is last. Um, we would prefer to have a guy who's less skilled and more hungry. Um, you know, uh, we, we, we talk about the difference between being hungry and being starving. Uh, it's a big phrase in Amherst is, no, you looked hungry today. Or, wow, you look starving. And, you know, I think there's that sort of that. Is that kid starving for success or is he just, yeah, I could eat. You know, and, and so I think that competitiveness is certainly a piece of it. Um, in terms of coaching philosophy, you know, my first thing is like undeniably positive, unapologetically positive. Like I'm just going to, I'm going to out positive the next negative guy. I'm just going to make you be positive by being in our program. And I'm going to recruit guys who are positive naturally. I'm going to recruit guys who are, who are enthusiastic, who are unapologetically positive and sort of like team culture wise, if that's where we're at and we all love being around each other and we're all super positive and we can assume positive intent. I know this comes back to like, what does that have to do with lacrosse? But it has everything to do as far as I'm concerned. It, it just, it creates a team culture that guys really enjoy being at. And so sort of enthusiastic, positive, here we go. We'll figure the X's and O's out as we go, but we're going to be really, really upbeat and really, really positive about it. I think those are probably the two pillars of my coaching philosophy. Interesting. And um, where does IQ and smart player fit into the mix? How do you, and how do you evaluate that? Yeah, when I think about IQ, I, I do sort of lump that into skill. Um, okay. You know, I think, I think that, for us is less important, but I got to tell you, like for the guy who is super, has a super IQ, it doesn't take much for you to jump that guy who is super athletic and has no IQ, you know? So I think there is like a threshold that if you reach this threshold of having a lacrosse IQ, then we can allow athleticism to sort of take over. But then if you can't reach that threshold, we can't recruit you. You know, and so the guy we've got a, actually a guy in the incoming freshman class is from Long Island. I just think his IQ is off the charts, and he's not six four, he's not six three, he's six foot, and so you're sort of like that guy at six feet with that kind of lacrosse IQ and that kind of body control is gonna jump the guy who's six three who runs a four five or a four six. He's gonna jump that guy, and so again for us athleticism and speed usually project success in college, but IQ and skill certainly are an X factor that, that, you know, if we're going to split hairs, that's one of the hairs that I don't feel all that comfortable splitting. <laughs> yeah, agreed. Well, you could probably uh, lump IQ into athleticism too, because part of being athletic is having a level of athletic IQ and, and just, you know, having awareness, you know, no you see those guys that are super athletic and you play basketball with them, you give them a little, up fake and they jump through the roof and you just go by them. I mean, that there's a little, little element of a lack of IQ there for people that just don't know how to play, you know? It's, it's absolutely true. And, and I'm thinking about a current junior on our team right now who he was an attackman by trade in high school. He's going to be a midi for us this year and not the fastest guy in the world, but I got to tell you, his body control is just exceptional. And so you think you've got him covered and then he pulls one of these slimy moves off for that's the only word you can use to describe it is that was really slimy. And then all of a sudden he's open or then all of a sudden he's creating for somebody else. There's something to be said about body control and, and athletic IQ too. Uh, you know, there is no, for us, there is no perfect cookie cutter recruit. Um, yeah. You know, we've got guys playing who are five, eight we got guys playing or six five i mean there is no perfect guy for us yeah and now how does the recruiting timeline go for you guys um if you uh tell us about maybe uh, when you can sort of find out if you can offer somebody and then work back from there on how you might have found out who that person was yeah um 
July 1st is the first date admissions can provide feedback for possible candidates in our league. July 1st after junior year. After your junior year. And so that allows admissions to read three full years of a transcript to see what the trend is. By that time, usually there are at least two standardized tests in the book. Amherst uh, does require standardized testing. So that is, you know, an important dynamic at, at our place, you know, that, that, I don't see changing anytime soon. Amherst and Williams continue to require it. I'm not sure it's going on either place is going to drop it anytime soon. But, um, and so once we get some concrete feedback, we know fairly clearly where a guy is going to fall. And by fairly clearly, things could change if he gets a C, if he doesn't do real well in the classroom, but that doesn't typically happen. And so after July 1st, before your senior year, after your junior year, we got a really clear idea of where you fall. And now it's up to the coaches to figure out, are you worth that level of support in the admissions process? And so working our way back from there, how do we typically make those decisions the campus visit is really, really important. Um, how we click with a family, how we click with a young man. Um, you know, often I'll, I'll ask the assistants, is that an Amherst guy? Um, and so that's a really important, that's a really important um, process is the, the campus visit. And then, and then three, sometimes four, five live evaluations is not abnormal for us. Um, and hopefully spreading those over the course of 18 months, you know, between sophomore and junior year, junior fall and then junior summer you know before your senior year is our last eval opportunity and if you can spread three four five evaluations out over you know 18 to 24 months you're going to have a good sense of is this young man trending athletically too you know I, I I hear our admissions department use that phrase trending all the time and they're the, they're the professionals are projecting, not for nothing, but us as coaches are not professionals are projecting. Admissions people are the ones who project success in college. If they're using trending as their primary criteria, we might want to think about it too. And so we think about trend a lot. Is the kid plateauing? Isn't he plateauing? Is there, is there room to grow in front of him? Uh, and honestly, Jamie, one thing that we have figured out at Amherst fairly recently is, I mentioned hairs earlier. If we're going to split hairs, I'll tell you the thing that I'm putting the most priority on right now, and it's how much the kid wants to be at your school. And it's not for any other reason that every kid who has like been knocking my door down has ended up being like a world-class player. You call it whatever you want. You call it the fact that the kid's happy at Amherst. The kid works harder because he's happier, that he's happier as a student. And therefore he outpasses the kid who just is like, yeah, fine. I'll take it. All right. I'll take the offer. It just, projects really well when a kid's dying to be at your place we always do well with those kids and even if there's a he's a hair less talented right now he always ends up being a hair more talented when he gets here for whatever reason that is again it's this self-serving piece of I want the kid who's going to be really good when he gets here kid who's really good right now like good for you but do you pass all the other tests too so that again self-serving but but you know that's how we've come to do it so as far as these live evaluations, um, you're going to watch club teams play, you're going to camps and then prospect days at Amherst? Yeah, that's, that's it. I mean, as you, as you know, you know, the, the prospect days are endless. Um, every place has one. Every place has a, a good one. Um, you know, there are a bunch of good recruiting camps out there. And then we probably go to 30 or 40, you know, camps and events during the summer too. And, and um, you know, I think – I always find it interesting to look around, look around the offices in the summer in your in your athletic building, wondering what what other what other sports do. Like, to, when is their recruiting time? You know, soccer's are in the winters where we don't really have that much to do, and then in the summer we are all just running around like chickens with our heads cut off. And you're like, yeah, this is when we make our money right now. Between June and August is when we make our money because that's when you figure out if you're going to be good in four years from now. So yeah, we 30 or 40 events prospect day at our place. Uh, and then a bunch of tournaments with club teams, um, you know, throughout the, throughout the year, Ju junior fall has become a really important one for us. That's become a really important time for us. So yeah, I figured um, as much. what's that? I figured that's how it would be. Yeah, junior fall because you kind of get a look at some people in the summer before their junior year. But at that time, you know, you don't know if who you're looking at, you know, is going to end up at Harvard or something, or yep. you know, or whether they're going to be available 
Um, and, but by junior fall, a lot of those kids have gone off the list and it's like, all right, they're at that camp to be seen. by Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I think a lot of it is, you know, the kids who want to go to Duke and Carolina and Virginia, as you say, they're going to go, they're going to go in September, you know, and, and they're going to be gone by the 1st of October. And, you know, for a lot of, a lot of the country, I get really excited to get in recruiting battles with a lot of the country. Um, there are a handful of schools that I roll my eyes and I'm like, ah, we got to, we got to fight that school again. Um, but, but for, you know, 95% of the country, I really like our, our opportunity to recruit against them. And so, you know, coach Corgan at Notre Dame is a real pain in the tail to recruit against. But uh, besides him, I, I got to tell you, I love, I love recruiting against most of the, most of the country. Well, like you said, it's a win-win because if they don't pick it, then you didn't want them anyway. <laughs> um, John, I really appreciate you taking the time and, and talking to us and going deep on your philosophies uh, on how you build your team and how you recruit players and build your culture. And uh, it's really, really interesting stuff. Well, Jamie, I appreciate the time for you. And thanks for spending some time with me. And love the Brown connection. I love the fact that you're crushing it out there. Keep cranking, all right? Thanks, buddy. Good luck this season. Thanks, man. See you.